This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. At age 14, Carlotta Walls Lanier of Denver was thrust into the battle over civil rights in this country. All she really wanted to do was go to school. Sixty years ago, she was one of nine black students who integrated a high school in Little Rock. Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus had refused to allow black students to enter the school, even though the U.S. Supreme Court had declared segregation unconstitutional. Here's Faubus. I have therefore, in accordance with the solemn responsibilities and the oath of my office, taken the following action. Units of the National Guard have been and are now being mobilized with the mission to maintain or restore the peace and good order of this community. Advanced units are already on duty on the grounds of Central High School. This led to weeks of wrangling between state and federal authorities as the students repeatedly walked through angry mobs. Eventually, President Dwight D. Eisenhower sent in Army troops to escort the students into school and between classes. Carlotta Walls Lanier was the youngest of the nine. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. When I see news footage from those days, you all seem so calm amidst that anger and screaming. Were you as calm inside as you appeared outside? For me, I I would say yes. I'm 14. You need to understand. You know, we at 14, you think you're invincible, and uh, I knew that I was in the right based on the law, and that's how I grew up, understanding if you stay within the law. Your parents now, had these kinds of conversations oh, yeah, well, with you? Well, not only that, that's what we learned in school. You weren't afraid? I, I can't remember that piece, to be honest with you. Um, I had to stay above the noise, and that's how I made it, really, through those whole three years. I'm glad you talk about the whole three years, yeah. right? Because there's so much focus on the I know. A- escorting and on like the, the days. But did it ever start to feel normal? Did school feel normal after even a year? Never. It was never normal for me. I didn't have the opportunity to do anything other than go to school every day. What do you mean? Well, the superintendent of schools uh, had um, spoken to all of those that had elected to go to Central. And then evidently there was a selection process because 117 kids could have gone. 39 were selected. African-American students. African-American kids. And of that 39, I expected all of us 39 to be there. But when we heard from the superintendent that we could not participate in any extracurricular activity. We could not work on the newspaper, be on any team. We couldn't play football or basketball or be in the band or be in the choir or run for office as in student council. And all of these things most of us had done at the black high school. So I think I never talked to the other 30 as to why they didn't go. But on that first day, it turned out to just be the nine of us. Yeah. Uh, what was their justification for not letting you do anything outside well, of sitting at a desk? because there was so much pushback from that group of segregationists. The superintendent 
made the statement that the school board was going to abide by the Supreme Court decision, but they would have to put a plan in place. So this plan included that, okay, because there were white parents who didn't want their white kids sitting next to black children or participating in plays with them or just normal social contact. Did you make any white friends? Yes, but not not the way you made friends, okay? Um, it was undercover in a sense. People in various classrooms would speak to me out of the side of their mouth. You know, I didn't, I never had a friendly phone call or made a friendly phone call to any of my peers, uh, well, other than the black kids, as far as white kids, no, the whole time that I was involved. So it took all the fun out of school because I enjoyed school. I, you know, I enjoyed doing well in my classes. Uh, I enjoyed being president of the girls' council or captain of my basketball team, captain of my cheerleading team. These things were all true at the all-black high school. Right. Where you so, spent that first year. Yeah, uh, when, when I was in the ninth grade. So yeah. when now I'm a sophomore in high school, and uh, all of that was taken away. Now, I did feel, and I didn't mind letting that go to the side, because I felt that the next year I might have that opportunity. This was the first so naturally, they were going slow in integrating the school. So hope kept you there, right. but it really never materialized. Never materialized. And so when you applied for college, right? It, <laughs> what happened? Because you, you didn't have a full, a charged resume. That, you know? No, I didn't. <laughs> that, that's interesting that you bring that up. A lot of people don't. Um, in applying, I noticed there was only one school that really understood who I was. And they denied my application, but they were going to hold a spot for me the next year. They felt I needed a break from, from, and that was Antioch College in Ohio, where I really wanted to go. This and is I in was, Yellow Springs, Ohio. Yellow Springs, Ohio. I think Coretta Scott King went there. Um, she might have, yeah. either there or Miami University. She did go to in Ohio, yeah. In other words, that school said, you probably need a mental health break. Right. Did you go there? No, I no. ended up in Michigan State. I was so disappointed because, see, you have to understand when you finish high school, you only had a few choices. You either got married or you worked or you went to college. And I was definitely going to college. So to be denied, even though I had excellent grades, even under those circumstances, that's where I put all my focus, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. What was the ugliest thing you witnessed in those three years? And what was the most moving thing? The ugliest thing. Well, I could say my home being bombed. Okay, so I'm fortunate enough to, in my family, still being here. Late one night, um, you know, I had gone to bed, and, and all of us had gone to bed, other than my father, who was working, uh, helping his father out at his cafe and pool hall. And all of a sudden, the house is, I hear this explosion and this smell and the smoke and the whole nine yards. And I get to the front of the house and my mother's coming out of her bedroom and my two sisters are coming out of theirs. And it's glass everywhere and the whole nine yards and smoke. Was everyone okay? 
we were we were okay. Um, How was the house? The house was, you know, on that side of the house, it was a big hole and, and so forth. And what was the greatest act of uh, kindness or beauty that you witnessed in those years at Central High? I, I would, kindness, <laughs> you know, I, I guess I could say this one particular uh, student who would always pick me to be on her team. And I think it's because not only could I do whatever it was rather well. This but is a team in the classroom, in right? A, in a classroom, yeah. And so uh, This is a white student? This is a white student. And she did it. And so I was never the last person to be picked, if you know what I'm saying. So I think overall that might have been the kindest thing. But the most joy I received at Little Rock Central High School was receiving my my diploma because it validated all the things that I had gone through for three years. There's a 1964 documentary that the National Archives restored, and we have a link to it at CPR.org. It's also on YouTube. And one commenter who noted he was a white man said how awful this chapter in history was. And then he wrote, at least it all worked out. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> uh, we're sixty years, and we're, and I'm looking at some of the same things that that happens, you know, to me prior to that. Now, there's been a lot of progress now, and it was all based on the Supreme Court decision, which was unanimous. I don't think we've had anything similar to that since 1954. You're talking about Brown versus Board Brown of Education. Brown versus Board of Education. And let me tell you, the Civil Rights Act, the Housing Rights Act, the Voters' Rights Act, that's all progress. And it all came from that foundation. So I'm not going to sit here and say that we're still living the same way. But I do see this pendulum swinging back in that particular direction. In which direction? <laughs> the Jim Crow era. Uh, the denying people of color the opportunity to vote or trying to change those laws. In fact, they're in the process of trying to change those laws. All the progress that we have made. Are you in touch with those other black students? Yes, I'm, I'm um, uh, in touch with everyone, yeah. What does this anniversary mean to you? Anything? It meant a, a great deal um, to still be here in 60 years afterwards and um, uh, for all of us to get together and to be able to see the children and the grandchildren and so forth. And one in the group always says that when we get together, we revert back to 14, 15, and 16. <laughs> I don't know how true all that is, but anyway. <laughs> It's the same kind of, you know, dynamics among people are still the same. Has there ever been a white person who might have been in the angry mob at that time or who was perhaps unkind to you as a fellow student who has come up in the years and decades since and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, we were on the Oprah Winfrey show. She has a way of finding these people and they were on the show and there were a couple who admitted to their wrongdoings and asked for forgiveness. I really never got to know these people, mm -hmm. only by reading about them. Mm -hmm. And you are now and here because you were ashamed. Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. I knew Carlotta just because she had a locker close to me, and we yeah. would, you know... So uh, you came here today, what? Do you? I am genuinely sorry for any 
negative things that I did at that time. I was really acting as a child that was not prepared. I had no hate for these people. I was never taught to hate, okay? And and I think that that is what happens, uh, that you're taught that. I was never taught to hate people. But I did recognize those that were... Um, who had unfounded fears, okay? And I recognized the ignorance of people. And I was always taught never stoop to that level. So I was not about to waddle with that, those, those kind of people. Carlotta Walls-Lanier, a longtime Denver resident, is the youngest of the Little Rock Nine. It's been 60 years since she helped integrate Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. We were curious what a young black activist today would ask her. And so we invited Thea Wilson to join us. He's a poet and executive director of Shop Talk Live, which holds community discussions about race and politics at a Denver barbershop. Wilson once pretended to be a white supremacist online, then did a TED Talk about what he witnessed. And that video has reached at least eight million people. Thea, what do you think of what you've heard so far? You know, I'm always awed by the emotional intelligence of the civil rights generation. When I think about the people who like to trigger folks into acting in embarrassing ways and how they just couldn't do that with you all, how you had the psychological fortitude Mm -hmm. to withstand the absolute worst in humanity and still maintain your humanity is a reason why, regardless of ideology, mm-hmm. I have the utmost respect mm-hmm. for what you and yours went through to lay the foundation for me, who was born in the early 80s, mm-hmm. you know. So what would you tell this young generation who's seeing this pendulum swinging back now because a growing number of blacks are disillusioned mm-hmm. now with the entire integration experiments? What would you say to them, keeping your sacrifice in mind? Well, there are a number of things. One is get to know who you are. Yes, ma'am. Okay, you really do need to be centered and know who you are. Oh. Now, I do fault the education system because they've taken away the arts. They've taken away civics. And yeah. civics is very important. I don't care what color you are. Yeah. To understand how to get involved Um, how to understand what is important within your community and so forth. You say more about that, about what it means to know who you are and why that's important. Well, you need to be proud of the fact that you have this heritage, whether it's African-American heritage or Hispanic heritage or Polish heritage or what have you. We've all given to this world. All, All these groups have given something that is good. And we need to look at that piece and grow from that. Thank you so much for that. Um, and I believe that you're really onto something in the fact that I saw mm-hmm. in my generation, the education system dropped the ball specifically in history. Right. And that history and, I suppose, mm-hmm. civics. See, mm-hmm. I, I didn't even get civics. I see you didn't. And, I did. <laughs> and, 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 and that is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Because in its absence, 
myths and lies right. were, be able, were being able to be taught about what you went through. Mm-hmm. And every month of the King Day, I see the legacy of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. almost stuffed and mounted like an elk's head on the wall. Mm-hmm. This is the past, and now we're in the future. Mm-hmm. The black and white sepultone photography and imagery and iconography of the people who were being lynched and hit with the mm-hmm. water hoses creates a distance that's not a real distance. Mm-hmm. You are still alive right. and in great shape mm-hmm. and in here. You, this has been one human lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so I saw the alt-right mm-hmm. spring up in the absence. So what I wanted to say is that American racism seems to be cyclical in nature. I am upset mm-hmm. that my grandfather is a Tuskegee airman. Mm-hmm. And when I was handcuffed to a chair, beaten by police, that didn't matter. Mm-hmm. What would you say to the black folks of today of what looks like a good strategy to prevent future generations having to go through this yet again. Well, again, is understanding your history. And I'm glad that you brought that up because that is a a piece of it. And it's one of the reasons I wrote my book because I needed to make sure that it, it was documented correctly. This book is A Mighty Long Way, My Journey to Justice at Little Rock. That's correct. So that is something that um, for you to go through what you you went through and still be able to talk about it is good because we have to have that continued dialogue. It was wrong for what took place. Um, I guess that is the same thing for you. <laughs> well, you're right. <laughs> so <laughs> this business of making sure that there are people that know where you stand on things and getting the support from various places. Now, we had support from parents Mm -hmm. and extended family members. Mm -hmm. Not that they all believed that what I was doing was the way to do it, Mm -hmm. okay? There was conflict within my family as far as, yeah, that really didn't want my mother and father to allow me to continue at the school. I've heard about that from members of your family. Right. So we need more dialogue. And that is why I have said, we we know a great deal about the white community, Hmm. but the white community does not know a great deal about African-American community. They have the myths. They have the stereotype thinking. Like what? You name it. I yeah. try not to even go there. I can talk about that. I mean, the <laughs> the, the myth of the welfare queen, the single right. motherism, the gangsterism, the talk of inherent criminality. On my online research for the alt-right, they used uh, IQ score differentials to advocate an idea of race reality that somehow the barriers between races were almost that of species rather than that of simply uh, different ethnic heritages uh, with slight environmental adaptations. So these myths allow the the, the wall of ignorance from the white community to remain tall. I, I do feel that this country is in pretty good hands with our young people. Okay, I cannot continue to do, um, you know, our age bracket. We're in our 70s, looking at 80s, okay? So we have to look to young people to carry the torch. But to do that, they really need to know the history. I have a lot to do to even call myself 
in the same you know vein as you all because you went through such fire literally you know what i mean and i'm i'm grateful for everything that y'all have done and your legacy makes me want to live up to something even greater than what i've already done in my life because i see what's what can't be done and what's possible because of y'all and you can do it thank you man i appreciate that (laughs) all right all right (laughs) Carlotta Walls-Lanier, a member of the Little Rock Nine, speaking with poet and activist Thea Wilson. They both live in Denver. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Why is there so much political gridlock? You get an interesting answer when you ask a cognitive scientist like Philip Fernback at CU Boulder. He has given this a lot of thought. Our conversation from earlier this year as the Obamacare debate raged was a listener favorite in 2017. Phil, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. So in a new book called The Knowledge Illusion, you write point blank that people are more ignorant than they think they are. We all suffer from an illusion of understanding. And you go on to write that one reason for this gridlock is that both politicians and voters don't realize how little they understand. Now, to illustrate this, you point to the toilet (laughs) and the zipper. So why don't we start there? What can a toilet or a zipper tell us about our own ignorance? If you ask people how well they understand things like, say, a toilet or a zipper or a can opener or any other kind of common thing that they interact with in their daily lives, they'll tell you they kind of understand how they work. They have a pretty good sense of that. They're confident Yeah, they, they could explain this thing that is in their lives every day. Exactly. But then if you ask them, okay, explain to me exactly how it works in a detailed way, um, you get pretty interesting kind of uh, result. It so, starts to break down. Absolutely. So people reach inside and they realize that they actually don't know nearly as much as they thought they did initially. Okay, I asked one of the smartest people I know, <laughs> our senior producer, if she knew how a toilet worked. Rachel Estabrook, how does a toilet work? It, you put so much water in that it forces everything down. You don't sound very sure of yourself. Yeah. I I mean, mechanical engineering or whatever is not, and plumbing is certainly is not my specialty. It's not your specialty. But I wonder if it surprises you that here's this thing you've used every day since you were potty trained, presumably, and its mechanism is a bit of a mystery to you. Yeah. It, it, so much of what happens in our modern life, right, is just you press a button or, you know, I know that when I push the lever on the toilet, things are going to disappear. And so essentially, there was a researcher who developed the first ignorance test around this idea of trying to explain simple household objects. That's right. Um, there was a psychologist by the name of Frank Kyle out of Yale University and, um, and his colleagues. And this is precisely what they did in their studies. They asked people, um, first, how well do you understand these kind of common objects? How well do you understand how they work? And then they asked people to explain. And then they tested them again to find out whether their uh, sense of understanding had been reduced. And they found these dramatic effects. They found, um, indeed, that people overestimate their their knowledge base, their sense of understanding. Absolutely, absolutely. It turns out that we know 
a very tiny amount about the way that the world works. It's really, um, when we reflect on it, it's really shocking. There's this great study we talk about in the paper um, by a psychologist named Thomas Landauer, who set out to estimate estimate the size of an individual's knowledge base okay. in bytes, so the same scale that you would use to measure a computer memory. Okay. And um, he did this in a variety of diff- very different ways, um, very clever approaches. For instance, one thing that he did was he um, had people study pictures or words and then later tested to see uh, whether they could remember them or recognize them. And then he could estimate the rate at which we can acquire knowledge and then sort of extrapolate to a human lifespan. Every time he got to the same estimate of that knowledge base. And so what do you think that was? Uh, well, I read the book. Yes. So I am not going to guess. Okay. So it's, But it's, I, I would think uh, compared to a computer, we'd fare, I don't know, fairly well because we're, we're so interested in getting computers to be more like us. It's, it's a pretty crazy result. So it's one gigabyte which I think is just an amazing thing. So if you buy a thumb drive on Amazon for 20 bucks, it's 64 gigabytes. So the human mind just is not made to store a lot of detailed information. We just do not know very much as individuals. Okay, so you and your co-author in this endeavor, the book again is called The Knowledge Illusion. Uh, Your co-author is Stephen Sloman. You extrapolated this research based on on the toilet, for instance, and whether people could explain it. And you tried to extrapolate to politics. Right. You conclude that just as people overrate their own understanding of toilets, they also overrate their understanding of political policies. People tend to have limited understanding of complex issues. They also tend not to have a good sense of how much they actually know. And the outcome is passionate polarized attitudes that are hard to change. That's right. And you you indeed relate this to the Affordable Care Act, saying public opinion is more extreme than people's understanding justifies. Say more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we've run studies showing exactly this, this illusion of explanatory depth or illusion of understanding in the context of political policies. Um, And basically, we use a similar kind of approach. So um, how well do you understand, you know, the Affordable Care Act or a sanctions policy on on Iran or something like that? And people tend to express pretty strong uh, beliefs about those things. And they they tend to think that they understand them pretty well. At the beginning, right. At the beginning. They think, I know this issue. Yeah. They say, yeah, I, I know that pretty well. I have a pretty good sense of it. Um, and then we ask them to explain, and that's when things start to break down. And what's um, especially interesting is they don't just um, realize that they know less than they think they do, but they actually become a little more moderate in their positions, which makes a lot of sense because if you realize that you're not on firm ground, that you don't understand the issue as well as you thought you did, it makes sense to become a little bit more moderate in your orientation. Okay, I think this is really the nugget here. A lack of understanding can go hand in hand with real passion. Absolutely. About an issue. And yet you'd think the less you know about something, perhaps the more reluctant you'd be to, to be passionate or outspoken. But that's not what research shows. That's right. Often we find exactly the opposite, actually. People who know the least about an issue can sometimes be the most passionate about it. And, and the reason for that is because the way we take in the world is in this kind of simplistic way. Things seem simple to us, like the toilet. Oh, I get that. And so we often don't appreciate how complex things are. When you have a little bit more expertise in a domain, what that often uh, entails is learning that the issue is more complex and becoming more moderate. So it's often the people who are the least knowledgeable who can have the strongest opinions. So when you look at the logjam in Washington these days and the polarization 
Are you just saying that everyone on Capitol Hill is ignorant? Uh, that is to say, you can only know something and be a moderate? No, so that I, I, I don't want to go that far. So, yeah. so like the point that we that we're trying to make in the book is about the structure of knowledge. Knowledge doesn't reside in individuals' heads. Like I said, each of us knows very little. What we're great at as human beings is sharing knowledge. So we're able to pursue incredibly complex goals because each of us knows a little bit, and our minds, the architecture of our minds, is really set up to collaborate, to work together, to pursue complex issues. And in fact, the subtitle of your book is Why We Never Think Alone. Exactly, exactly. Uh, And that the idea of combined knowledge, you argue, leads to better outcomes. What, What is the risk, do you think, to the democracy, I mean, let's get highfalutin here, Right of people's overestimation of their own knowledge. So the the issue is that individually, none of us knows enough to understand these really complex issues. And yet, as communities, we take positions on these issues. We have to. And as individuals, we have to take positions on the issues. The positions that you and I take on these issues are not based on knowledge that's actually residing in our own heads. They're based on this distributed knowledge that's um, distributed across our community. And our communities are awfully different. So you may that's, be getting a very right. different message about a policy from your community in Boulder, say. That's right. Than someone might be in Grand Junction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and yet we live in this illusion that we've arrived at our positions through a serious analysis. As individuals, we sort of channel our community when we express our opinions. That's kind of what we're doing. So it's not so easy to just say, oh, you know, you're wrong about this. Think something different. No, our position is really based on this sort of distributed knowledge and our identity in terms of how we affiliate in in these communities of knowledge. That's why it's so hard to bridge the gap. In a way, the knowledge illusion that you write about is a bubble, The, the, the bubble politically that many people are in. That's right. Absolutely. Um, so, we feel like we individually have these things figured out when, in fact, it's our community where the knowledge resides. And by virtue of that, um, we tend not to verify and check our own understanding. So we have these strong opinions about things that we don't understand very well. And we make decisions at the ballot box related to that. And our own elected officials are a reflection of that as well. I, I want to get back to this research that you did that seemed to be able to move people to a more moderate position. Right. Because if there's one thing we all know, it's that the polarization exists, the logjam exists. We've heard about that problem ad infinitum. And I think so many people are hungry for solutions that there could be a moderating force. Say more about how you got people to recognize their own lack of knowledge and to moderate their views of something. I think that this is really the $64,000 question. It is really, really hard to move people on issues and uh, to open people's minds. Often people uh, believe things that... Uh, might not be correct, and it's, it can be really, really hard to change minds. And there, l- let me start by saying there's a variety of things that don't seem to work very well. Um, most of the things that have been tried don't work very well. So huh. to give you one example, in our experiments, one of our, uh, one of our groups, what we did is we asked people to generate reasons for their position instead of to sort of explain how it works. Okay. Like I said before, if if we ask people to explain how it works, they become a little more moderate because they realize they don't understand as well as, as they thought. Then uh, we, if you ask people to, to talk about reasons, then they don't have that sort of uh, aha moment. 
basically it's easy to skim reasons off the top without sort of going deeper and, and, and realizing you don't understand the issue well. Um, if, if I say, why, do you, why are you in favor of cap and trade? You can very easily say, well, because I, you know, like I care about the environment or something like that without actually going deeper and realizing um, the complexity of the issue. So what you've learned there is less about having people explore their own thinking or reasoning and getting them to focus on the ins and outs of the issue That's itself. Right. That's right. And, and there's been some research on um, global warming, actually, that uses a similar kind of methodology. It turns out that if you um, ask ordinary Americans about the global warming mechanism, it turns out that just about 0% can actually articulate the mechanism. That's right. Let's focus on climate change yeah. because you write about the research of Michael Ranney. He's a psychologist yep. mm -hmm. at the University of California, Berkeley. And he had participants read a 400-word primer Right. On, on global warming and the mechanism behind it, the fundamental science behind it. He also made short explainer videos. Earth transforms sunlight's visible energy into infrared light, and infrared energy leaves Earth slowly because it's absorbed by greenhouse gases. And it continues. You right. can watch like a five-minute right. version of this. You can watch a two-minute, a one-minute version. And wh what did he find? So he found uh, similar results that climate deniers become a little bit more open-minded by virtue of, of watching these kind of mechanism videos or hearing these short mechanism explanations. Now, the, the um, science community has been trying for the longest time to get these kind of results, and often it's ineffective. So they do things like appeal to scientific consensus. So if you tell people who don't believe in the climate consensus that there's a scientific consensus and everyone believes it, it doesn't seem to really have the same kind of benefits. But if you explain the mechanism, it opens people up a little bit. We're speaking with Philip Fernback. He's a cognitive scientist at CU Boulder, and his new book is The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. And the fundamental idea behind it is that we tend to overestimate our knowledge of the world and that uh, this, in a way, ossifies our political positions, uh, not knowing what we don't know. So this is an exploration today of our own ignorance. So we, we've talked about how this relates to an issue like healthcare. Or climate change, but I, I want to get to to wedge issues that are not just based on facts, but based on heart, religious beliefs. Where does this uh, sort of break down uh, on an issue like abortion? Absolutely, yeah. That's a that's a great question. So. Um, we talk about the difference between what we call values-based and consequence-based positions. And so um, when you take a position on an issue, it can be based on a fundamental basic value. The data is irrelevant in that case. I just think it's wrong or I just think it's right. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's more of a consequentialist analysis or consequence-based analysis where you say, if we implement this policy, here's what's going to happen. And you make a, a great observation that if your position really is values-based, your understanding of it, your true understanding of the repercussions doesn't really matter. And there are certain issues where that might be the case, where we have a divide where it's just a fundamental disagreement about values. And I think that if you're on one side, you have to allow that the other side can have different values than you. Now, I, why I think that our research is relevant is because what happens is often we take issues that can or should be construed consequentially and we construe them in terms of values. In fact, sometimes politicians purposely do this in order to sort of shut down debate. In our research, what we find is that when you think about an issue through the values lens, it seems very black and white. It seems simple. 
So what we find is that when you do take on that values lens, it seems like um, it's impossible to compromise. And yet that lens, the values lens, can lead to very stirring speeches and sound bites. But I guess what you're saying is you're imploring politicians where they can to maybe step back from that and focus on the sort of meat or the, the brass tacks of an issue because it might be a place where more consensus could be found. I think it would help. I'm always shocked when I talk to somebody who has a different political view from me by how reasonable they are and how similar their sort of uh, their desires are in terms of what they want the outcomes to be. But that gets obscured when we talk in terms of our values, because as soon as we talk in terms of our values and we have this sort of overestimation of how well we understand it, there's only two possible explanations for why you think something different. Either you're stupid or you're evil. Mm. And that's kind of where we go to. But The caricature is often untrue in my experience. I like the word you're using, outcomes, that if you can focus less on values and and more on outcomes, what do you want the country to look like, healthcare to, that, that perhaps there's more room for common ground. How do you think the internet affects our perceptions of our own knowledge? I mean, the ability to Google and immediately get an answer, I'm guessing emboldens us even further. We're definitely in a new... Uh, era when all the world's knowledge is in my pocket. And there's actually been some really cool research. Um, Two different research groups sort of simultaneously discovered the same phenomenon, that when you search the internet, you actually get this inflated sense of knowledge and understanding. I've done a little bit of work on this, studying things like um, people's financial decision-making or medical decision-making. So for instance, if you go on and research your symptoms on WebMD, it makes you feel, yeah, it drives doctors nuts, right? Because um, you spend a few minutes on WebMD and all of a a sudden you feel like a genius. Right. Or I think I'm dying of some rare condition. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I I guess the, the string of what I'm hearing here, Phil, is that you value knowledge. You value those who know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And that strikes me as, as you putting a very high uh, value on, I don't know, academics or elites. That's a term that's been used a lot lately. Those who know a lot and probably know what they don't know. Yet I feel like this is a time in which elites are under attack. Science mm-hmm. is under attack and being questioned. But what do you think? Well, it's, I don't think it's an elitist position because we all have our own d- domains of expertise. And yes, when we're trying to adjudicate issues, say healthcare, I do think that it's really important to find good sources of expertise who really understand the issues in depth. But one of the major points of our book is that it is, is very non-elitist, right? Like as human beings, we're just not built to be able to store huge amounts of knowledge. And what we're really even, great at... Even Albert Einstein. Even Albert Einstein. You're saying right. he has shortcomings. Absolutely, yeah. So what human beings are really great at is this kind of group behavior, this ability to collaborate and pursue these incredibly complex goals when none of us has anything remotely approaching the knowledge to understand how to achieve that that goal. That no one person holds all of the knowledge, no two people do, and frankly, no one party I guess you could say, does either. Is this, uh, in a way, uh, advocacy for bipartisanship or something like that? So I I definitely don't want to make the claim that no one's right on any issues, that there can be no truth. Um, That's absolutely not the point at all. The point is that as individuals, as people who are non-experts, we should work 
to check our and verify our understanding about these issues because it, it's okay. To, we have to take positions. We're not saying you shouldn't take positions, but we should be a little bit better calibrated in the strength of those positions. How would you foster that in a community? How could that change how I interact with someone on a daily basis? I think it, it involves um, sort of habitually um, practicing more intellectual humility. Our minds uh, tell us, I got it, very rapidly, very quickly, doubt, about complex issues. You should doubt that. When you, you should feel doubt it? that. When you feel it, you should question it. And you also need to question your community. Now, you, we, like I said, we all sort of live under this illusion that we've arrived at these positions we have through a serious analysis. But often we are just channeling what our community has to say. And that can get us into trouble. That can make, make us uh, um, too slow to actually check and verify and, and also to assume that the other side is just completely off base. And they might be, but we're not always in position to actually adjudicate that. CU Boulder cognitive scientist Philip Fernback is my guest. His new book is The Knowledge Illusion. And I want to go back to this comparison between the human mind and the computer. So there was actually a study that sought to, to look to compare the, the human brain and the computer and found that the, the human brain's pretty puny when it comes to like uh, learning things and retaining things. I know this is a bit out there, but you go into it in the book. Would some sort of artificial intelligence actually be better at governing? Someday, <laughs> you know, I think about and, and you write about this as well, yeah. planes that largely fly themselves and that often make better decisions than human pilots might, because there are so many data points that a computer can take in that perhaps a, a pilot can't. And again, this is not universally true, but I don't know, in, in, in the way that we have autopilot, could we have auto government? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're even close to being there yet. So actually, there's been quite a bit of... Um, Sort of, I would I would say alarm about runaway artificial intelligence becoming super smart, right? We, and turning on us, and turning on us, right? We we make the argument in the book that that we're not even close to those kind of capabilities. So machines, artificial intelligences, are getting amazing at solving certain kinds of problems, and the scope of what they can do is 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 advancing very rapidly. But what really makes people special, this ability to collaborate with others, to share knowledge. That is a very special human capability that no machine is even remotely close to. And really to figure out how to get machines to be able to do that. To collaborate. Yeah, it's the same as solving sort of the mysteries of how the mind works. Cognitive science is a very young field. And we are just scratching the surface of understanding those kinds of things. You have told us that knowledge is shared in a community. It's spread out. Uh, and yet, don't we as as human beings tend to lionize individuals? So uh, we often think of, you know, Marie Curie mm -hmm. as the scientist who made a big discovery. We think of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as the civil rights leader. Um, we tend to lionize individuals. And I, I suppose that it means we lack the nuance of how certain historical breakthroughs occurred. Not to right. say that these people weren't pivotal, though. That's right. Um, there are, obviously, those people you mentioned are all amazing, great people. But the reality of history um, and of any endeavor is much more complex. Um, it really requires a community. No individual can do almost anything on their own. And this sort of illusion that we live under, that we ourselves have all this knowledge and that we can figure out everything on our own, it leads to this um, sort of false sense 
of, of how important individuals are and how much individuals can contribute. And I think it's really a shame because we sort of go through life feeling like we ourselves need to know everything and that we should be experts in every domain and we're embarrassed if we don't know something or can't remember something. And it's just not realistic to see the world that way. All people are imperfect and ignorant. Um, that's just the way it is. As we wrap up, I'd like to have you read a passage for us from the book, The Knowledge Illusion. Some Eastern philosophies encourage adherents to appreciate their own ignorance, to accept that they know little and to respect what others know. Indeed, some traditions go farther, encouraging people to have gratitude for the knowledge of others. We take this as a lesson of cognitive science, too. We can learn and conceive only a finite amount as individuals. To achieve greater things, we need a community. In the most fundamental way, in terms of how we think, we're all in it together. That is Philip Fernback, cognitive scientist at CU Boulder. Our conversation about his book, The Knowledge Illusion, was a 2017 listener favorite. Finally today, there's a tradition at the end of the year that gets me a little choked up. Our colleagues at CPR's Open Air remember musicians who've died by getting local bands to play their music. Well, Tom Petty was a big loss in 2017, and Colorado musicians Sarah Anderson and Paul DeHaven offer up their version of End of the Line. It's a song from the Traveling Wilburys, a supergroup that featured Petty, Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Roy Orbison, and Jeff Lynne. Well, it's Sit around and wait for the phone to ring at the end of the line. Waiting for someone to tell you everything at the end of the line. Sit around and wonder what tomorrow will bring at the end of the line. Maybe a diamond ring. Well, it's alright. Even if they say you're wrong, well, it's alright. Sometimes you gotta be strong. It's all right. As long as you got somewhere to lay, well, it's all right. Every day is judgment day. Maybe somewhere down the road a ways at the end of the line. You'll think of me and wonder where I am these days at the end of the line. Maybe somewhere down the road when somebody plays. End of the Line, a tribute to the late Tom Petty by Colorado musicians Sarah Anderson and Paul DeHaven. They are part of a new collaboration, by the way, called Mount Marrow. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us. I'm satisfied Well, it's all right Even if you're only in gray, well, it's all right 
same. 